Welcome on in to the Double Check Podcast. I am Colin. And I am Brett. <laughs> you sure? <laughs> I was trying to change it up and then utterly fell. Oh, okay. I'm Brett. I'm, I'm B. Cox over there. Uh, Brett Bear, as he's affectionately called. That's um, true. You know what, Brett? This is our 10th episode. So that's a little bit of a milestone. We're in double digits now. This is a milestone. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, this is episode 10. So we'll have to do something big for each milestone. You know, when we get to 100, maybe we uh, will ha- write our theses in 100 words or less. Whenever I was researching write theses, oh, man, that'd be a really short episode. That we would do be rapid, <laughs> rapid fire theses. Yeah. Like 10 theses. <laughs> um, whenever I was doing research for this podcast, uh, there were some stats about a certain percentage of podcasts don't make it past episode 10. And once you get past episode 10, your chances of continuing as a podcast for the foreseeable future like goes up. So we've made it. We've made it, yeah. We have. Ma- well, I guess we have to get past 10. So the next time we make it, but we're almost there. We're on yeah. the precipice of making it. Yeah. We we may make it uh, before before too long here. All right. Well, uh, it's time for the coin flip here, and I'm going to flip it. This is a standard quarter. That's mm-hmm. heads and that's tails. What is your call? My call is heads because it came up tails last time. Playing the odds here, playing the percentages. It's like the shift in baseball. Here we go. And it's tails. It is tails. Yep. Be- because tails Dang never it. fails. You don't play. You don't play the uh, the analytics, Brett. You just say tails never fails, and it works. Well, you remember my friend? That's the math geek. Before he would say that <laughs> it doesn't matter what it's done before, the chances are still the same 50 50. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah. So, but in regards to the shift in baseball, I don't know how I feel about it because I, I, I get it. I understand why it happens, but I don't know. I honestly would like to see it banned. I, I feel like baseball would be better if they ban it. But is there anything in the rules about, about like, position names or no no you would have to you would have to I- I input something into the rules like okay four infielders you have to have two on e- two on the right side two on the left side you can't have three on one side they all have to be on the infield dirt you can't have somebody on the outfield grass all your infielders have to be like you can call them whatever you want yeah. but they would have to input something in the rules like two on this side two on this side i i mean there'd be more hits i i feel like the game would be better for that i don't know i don't, I don't know enough about analytics or or anything i just know that apparently it works because they wouldn't keep doing it if it didn't yeah yeah it's a new school thing anyway i've won the toss i think i am going to follow uh tradition play the analytics i guess and defer to you all right so last week i foreshadowed what i was going to talk about today with uh saying that i was going to talk about liturgical elements in our christmas services and how that points to something that's going on inside of our souls. We spent a good amount of time on this program talking about what the typical evangelical church in America looks like today, and a lot of the inspiration regarding that comes from what many would say is the quote-unquote contemporary church. I say that because I don't want to lump all evangelical churches together, but it is very noticeable that they are now trending towards what people would say is a contemporary model as opposed to a traditional model. And as I think about why this transition may be happening, I think it can be distilled into two overarching themes. The first one is that there's an 
effort to be relevant and to be easily approachable. By changing preferential elements of a service, uh, by preferences I mean like what the place looks like and what kind of music you play, how the the speaker may look as he's addressing the congregation, they feel like they're going to attract a new demographic if they make these preferential changes. For example, instead of having theologically dense hymns, they may sub in songs that have been written more recently that are more rhythm-based and band-centric. Not to say that it sounds and looks like a concert, but it definitely takes on more concert-type elements. Or whenever I was talking about how the speaker addresses the crowd, it takes on a lot of uh, more self-help type of language instead of more theologically based sermons. Not that it's not theologically sound. It can be theologically sound, but they've geared themselves toward an audience that is obsessed with a self-help culture. But whenever we look at the times that we return back to our traditional models, a lot of times that happens at Easter time and at Christmas time. There's feelings of certainty that come with going back to these traditional models, especially during those times. There's familiarity. There's consistency to us. It harkens back to a time that was simpler, so to say. It's also a uniting force. Whenever we go to an Easter service or a Christmas service in this, in this circumstance and we see these traditional elements coming back, it feels like we're a part of something that's bigger than just ourselves. So this points that we want to come back to these liturgical elements because we appreciate that they're rooted theologically, right? I I was at a Christmas service with my father a couple years ago, and we sang O Holy Night. And if you read O Holy Night— just the lyrics, how theologically dense it is, it's a display of the gospel in that one song. And that's not liturgy, so to say, but it does it does have a liturgical type feel to it. And so it shows that we need to be more rooted in theology whenever we feel this this inclination to go back to these traditional types of of services. We appreciate in these services that they're not swayed solely by culture, right? To have something set apart from the culture that we live in that stands on its own and stands the the test of time, this is something that we can feel that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. We feel like it's going to stay grounded. That's security, in these liturgical type of traditional services, there's security there that we want to have. We move away from personal preference church culture. As much as people, whenever they go visit a church the first time, they're talking about all these preferential things, quickly those things start to fade away. And they start to see where these things attracted them to this church to begin with. They are now the point of contention among the people that got attracted there in the first place. Whenever we go back to traditional elements or more liturgical elements that are set before us and have stood the test of time, 
we are part of a, a church culture that doesn't get swayed by preference. And again, that's another piece of security that we have. So as we go into our Christmas experiences, our Christmas services at our churches, make note of the traditional or more liturgical type elements that are coming back, the reading of Scripture as lessons, the singing of old hymns, the more structured way of going throughout the service. Notice the security that you feel, the uniting force that you feel with the people around you and people around the world who are doing similar things. And ask yourself, if this is what we go back to during the most important times of the year, Easter and Christmas, why are we not doing this throughout the rest of the year? And ask yourself that honestly and see where it leads you. Okay, so you have a lot of discussion about liturgy, and I think that for the sake of our listener and for the sake of me, because I think we may have a little bit different definitions about what liturgy is. So could you just define what you mean when you talk about liturgy? Okay, so whenever I whenever I'm talking about I tried to be conscious about whenever I said liturgy and liturgical elements and I may have switched that up. Liturgy is like a prescribed uh, order of service, a prescribed set of readings at certain times that more structured denominations may use to make everything consistent across. So that is the definition of liturgy. And what I think I'm trying to bring forth is are things that have liturgical elements to them. So whenever I say liturgical elements or if I accidentally said liturgy, during this. What I'm talking about here are things that are consistent, that have been consistent through history of evangelical churches that bring people together. Like, I would say that the the hymn Amazing Grace is liturgical in nature because it is wide-ranging across many churches. And so there is something that unites all of us whenever we sing this song that so many people understand and know. It has elements of liturgy to it that like a a denomination that has prescribed liturgy would have because everyone's familiar with it too. So that's kind of where I'm going. Okay. So you're you're thinking – of the more deep theological things, whether it's hymns or reading of Scripture um, and advocating for a return to those elements. Yeah, I'm advocating for a return to tried and true, familiar elements to our worship services that many people have experienced uh, together that have been proven to evoke certain feelings in people. Okay. And I, I'm certain that this is something that we're going to discuss more in the future. But like when you, when you talk about liturgy, to me, like it's like you said, liturgy is an order of worship. And even the contemporary church, they don't call it liturgy, but they have a liturgy. No matter what denomination it is that you're going to, whether it's Baptist or uh, you know any Protestant denomination that could be considered a contemporary church, what do they have? Uh, worship followed by some type of announcements. 
maybe a couple more songs than, you know, a sermon that's anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes to an hour. Um, and then maybe, you know, a couple more songs, an offering. Uh, it, you know, a lot of times there's a, a taking of, of the, um, the Lord's Supper. And then, you know, maybe, maybe another announcement or two, and then that's it. That's the order of worship, no matter where you go. So um, I think that the, the issue isn't so much that we need to return to a structured order of worship, but that we need to be more theologically sound, not just in the, the teaching and in the, the reading of Scripture, but in, in the songs. Would you say that that's true? Yeah, I would say that's true. As you were just going through that, I would, if if I wanted to to wrap it up in one little phrase, I would say that right now we, of course, we have a liturgy. We have a liturgy of convenience. We have a liturgy of convenience of time and thought. Where I know that a lot of people go to church, and it might be a check on their to do list, and the way that we have church, a lot of churches have their liturgy, their schedule set up is one of, it's just convenience and it's very predictable and predictable is good. I was just talking about how predictable is good, but are we, do we really want it to be a liturgy about convenience of time or do we want it to be a liturgy that is focused on theology and the gospel? Those are two very different things. And right now, I think a lot of people are more concerned with let's make sure that we get out on time today than we are. Let's make sure that the gospel is heard today, whether it be in the speaking or in the music that we have or even in the giving of offering, right? That is a testament of a response to what the gospel is. And instead, the liturgy, the way that it's explained now is – you know, you can do this as you do other things, or you can give online. Or I'm not knocking online giving, but <laughs> it's just we we have a culture of convenience. We have a liturgy of convenience. Yeah, uh, and I, I definitely agree with that. I think that um, there should be more um, theology, more gospel um, in most of the contemporary churches. But I do just kind of want to pick at it just a little step further, and I, I know that this is something that we're going to d- dive deeper into in future episodes. But when you look at the New Testament church and the way that they functioned, it was very different, even from the more liturgical uh, church services. Like if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verse 26, Paul says, uh, What shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you— Key phrase, each of you, each one of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Now, we've talked in the past about uh, sort of the divide between pulpit people and pew people. And so when you go into a typical church service, there is what is more or less a stage and more or less an audience. And the people on the stage are the paid professionals. They're paid to be there. You don't stand up, and, I mean, unless maybe you, if you go to a Quaker church or something like that, you don't stand up and say, I have a word from God. I have this song that God's put in my heart. You don't do that. You'll be asked to leave if you do that. So do you think that, while I agree that we should be more uh, theological and more um, gospel-centered uh, in our church services, do you think that 
uh, returning to the more liturgical elements, uh, as you said, still doesn't go far enough if we're trying to get back to New Testament Christianity. I think thinking about the liturgical elements of our, our services is a good step. I think something that you just brought forth is perhaps how our churches are set up to be governed and how we look at membership. And so now we're talking about ecclesiology, right? And I think that is something that needs to be looked at as well. I think liturgical elements in the service, liturgy and ecclesiology go hand in hand together. And you can't have full change of one without the other. And I think that there is, on the ecclesiology side, there is a deficiency in people thinking about how their churches are governed. Uh, and I'm not saying that there are good biblical arguments for all sorts of different types of church governments and how membership happens and what the roles of members are. Can we at least just all resolve to start to think about it and come up with good ideas and stances on it and have churches actually outline that and empower members? Uh, or maybe sometimes a member has more power than an elder should and it goes the opposite way. But can we at least resolve to start thinking about this this kind of stuff? I'm here for yeah. it. I'm I'm here for it. I'm here <laughs> for it too. All right. So that that that's yeah. All right. That's well, what I got. Where, where are you going next, Brett? Well, next week it will be Christmas Eve, and so I want to get right into what Christmas is, and I have a new perspective on how I think about the Christmas season, especially Advent. And I think I might be one of the uh, people late to the game in how I think about Advent, but I'm going to explore how I am interacting with the Lord in this season of Advent and hopefully be able to encourage some other people. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, I am here for the changes that you've made, but I'm also here to wish you a Merry Christmas and a happy new year. And a happy new year. Uh, and the Merry Christmas, believe it or not, is coming from Babylon. Uh, we're going to continue today to talk about Christmas. I want to touch today on the topic of some of our Christmas traditions. Uh, it may be surprising to you to learn that most of what we associate with the Christmas holiday has its origins in the pagan practices of ancient Babylon. Now, most people think that we got these traditions from Rome, but actually most of what we associate with uh, pagan Roman culture had its origins in ancient Babylon. And Babylon is mentioned in over 300 references in the Bible. It's even alluded to three times in Christ's own genealogy. So I think we should talk a little bit about Babylon as it relates to Christmas. Now, the first world dictator was Nimrod, who built the famous Tower of Babel as the centerpiece of his rebellion against God. And this was the beginning of the city of Babylon. Now, God disrupted that rebellious coalition through the confusion of tongues in Genesis 11, but this rebellion against God is still with us today. The residuals from Babylon, including most of the traditions of idol worship, astrology, and the occult, continue into the present day. 
As a for instance, the original biblical significance of the Zodiac, or the Maseroth, as the book of Job refers to it, was corrupted by the Babylonian religious system, and it continues in all cultures today. But what does ancient Babylon have to do with Christmas and our traditions today? Well, the son of Nimrod was named Tammuz, and his queen, Semiramis, was identified with the Babylonian sun god and was worshipped following the winter solstice on about December 21st to 23rd, depending on the year. Well, as the days became shorter and shorter through the winter, they become the shortest at the winter solstice around that time, December 21st to 23rd. And Tammuz was thought to have died during the winter solstice, and he was memorialized by burning a log in the fireplace. Well, that was eventually corrupted even further, and that became a burning of infants in the fire as a sacrifice to Tammuz. And the Chaldean word for infant is Yule, and this is the origin of the Yule log. Now, a Yule log is something that we've heard of in Christmas songs, but we don't do that, right? We obviously don't do that. So this doesn't apply to us, sure. But the so-called rebirth of Tammuz was celebrated by replacing the log with a trimmed tree the next morning. Does that sound familiar? Most people who celebrate Christmas in the United States do put up a Christmas tree. How many know that this is where they came from? And I can't help in any discussion of Christmas trees, but to take a peek into Jeremiah 10. Jeremiah 10 uh, verses 2 through 4, the prophet writes, This is what the Lord says, Do not learn the ways of the nations, or be terrified by signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them. For the practices of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it will not totter. And the hardware store sells little lights to string around. Oh, wait, that part's not in there. But there are numerous other examples. The wassail bowl, the mistletoe, which was a fertility rite. Even the Christmas ham comes from these Babylonian celebrations surrounding the worship of the sun. Well, when Babylon was conquered by subsequent empires, the entire religious system was transplanted, first to Pergamus under the Persians and then to Rome. And as the pagan Roman religious system was integrated with Christian ceremonial observances, many of our current traditions surrounding Christmas emerged. And it's not just Christmas, by the way. This Babylonian influence can be seen in most other holidays as well. The Babylonian worship of Ishtar, the golden egg of Astarte, and the fertility rites of spring give us Easter. That is a transliteration of Ishtar, the mother goddess of Babylon. These get combined with other fertility symbols, such as the prolific rabbits. Haven't you ever wondered where we get rabbits that lay eggs? The calendar year ending on October 31st and its associated occultic rituals and the uh, festival of Samhain gave us our Halloween. Many ancient cultures, Celts, Druids, etc., observed October 31st, the eve of Samhain, as their year end. And this was related to the worship of Baal and it might have even been stimulated by the disturbances of the er orbit of the earth 
in ancient times which were associated with the planet Mars. And by the way, this doesn't just influence our holidays. Almost every aspect of our daily life has some influence that comes from ancient pagan worship rituals. The names of our months and our days, most of the commonly seen wedding traditions, it's really staggering to realize the breadth of influence that this kind of stuff has in our culture. But my question to you is, what do we as discerning Christians do with this? Because on the one hand, we want to enjoy many of these traditions that we've grown up with, which remind us of the Christmas season. I like having a Christmas tree in my house, for instance. And as long as I'm not worshiping a false god or giving reverence to the tree itself over Jesus, isn't it harmless? Yet on the other hand, we do want to honor God and we know how strong his commandments are against idolatry. So what do we do with this stuff? Well, may I offer a suggestion? First of all, when it comes to observing holidays or special occasions, it should be pointed out that the New Testament doesn't really ordain anything other than the Lord's Supper, but it does not prohibit it either. And under grace, Christians are free to honor different days if they wish. As long as your heart is focused on the Lord, it doesn't matter. So may I suggest to you that families who want to keep Christ as the center of Christmas may find it easier to do so by understanding the various symbols that have been used to celebrate Christ's birth throughout the ages and using them to retain the uniqueness of the birth of the Son of God. For example, this Christmas, maybe you'll put up a tree. But what if you also took some time to remember the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh that were presented by the Magi? These prophetic gifts celebrated his deity, his priesthood, and his death. And when he returns to establish his kingdom, he will be presented only with the gold and the frankincense. There will be no myrrh at that time because his death is now behind him. So take some time to consider what gift you can give him this Christmas. Is there something in your life that he would like to see you part ways with? And this is merely one suggestion, but whatever you do, let's make this season a real celebration of the birth of our precious Savior. Okay, so last week I talked about Little Drummer Boy. It was epic. And <laughs> it was people, epic. People get really mad at me. So, and, and you posed to me what's wrong with anything that harkens back to to Jesus. Okay, so I get my thoughts on that, and I kind of have the same question for you now. And it is, what do we do with these elements that, in our mind, harken back to Jesus because they are associated with Christmas, but whenever we put them through the full test and we understand where they came from, it's very far away from Jesus. And I realize that as long as it makes you think about Jesus, blah, 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 blah. But there, there's something more there. History is – history and tradition is important. It means a little bit more whenever things are done over and over and over again and for what reason. And so at one point, these things were done over and over and over again for a reason other than Jesus. What do you do with that? 
That is always a difficult question to think about. And, you know, I don't know that I have a, a really good answer for it because, you know, throughout history, you can look and see how these different pagan traditions got intermingled with Christian traditions and basically just kind of became relabeled as Christian when they really had nothing to do with Christianity at all. And ultimately, I I feel like they did lead people away from an understanding of the Savior and of his his plan of redemption in the world. So I, I think that that is always a risk when you talk about these different uh, rituals and traditions that originated in in pagan culture, but I think a good first step is to under to, to to have an understanding of where they came from, to have an understanding that this is the origin of those uh, of those traditions, and you know having that understanding at least for me it helps me you know if I'm looking at our Christmas tree I don't get caught up in wow, gee, it's so pretty. It's so, you know, the lights are shining so bright. It makes me realize that Christmas tree, while it looks pretty, it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. And, you know, its origins are actually kind of sinister. But understanding that gives me, uh, I think, a protection, I guess, from falling into making the same mistake of putting the Savior out of my mind and just focusing on on those decorations or whatever it is. So I think a good first step is, you know, gaining that understanding. Beyond that, I don't know if I have a really great answer, though. I, while you were talking, something popped you, – something you said flashed something in my head and it made me think about Paul writing about defi- or, uh, food sacrifice to idols. And so this food has a history have, have, having been sacrificed to these idols. Not to say that Christmas traditions uh, are like – I mean you did talk about sacrificing babies. But uh, not to say that the history of tr- Christian traditions is the same. But I think there's a principle that can be drawn. And that is uh, Paul says you possess the knowledge of who is in charge of the world. You shouldn't really feel bad about – Eating this like food says something set down in front of me. Eat it is basically what Paul's saying, but he puts a caveat in, which is, but what if you know that there's someone who is of weak mind, who is more accustomed to the ways of the world? They see you eat this food, causes them to stumble. Then don't eat the food is basically what he says. I think maybe the, this might be a, a way of thinking for us to apply here because us – really us putting up a Christmas tree or you know burning a log or <laughs> whatever, that's not going to cause anyone to stumble. And that's something that we do. It might have had a different origin, but it is something that we do now around the time that we celebrate Christmas uh, and Jesus' birth. And as long as it doesn't cause anyone to stumble – I think my official stance on it now, having been able to think about it since the last episode, is that, you know, we shouldn't feel bad and it it's fine. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I think that that is actually a really good example. That's a good principle to apply um, in this situation. And, you know, if somebody – if you do encounter somebody who is just like, well, Christmas is just all about pretty trees and lights and, and snow and Rudolph and Santa and all this all this stuff – 
maybe take a moment to to, to talk, talk to talk to them. I think probably the the place where that is um, going to be most influential is within the families. Like you and I, uh, we don't have any children. Hopefully, one day we will, and our our children will grow up and become baseball superstars together who are playing in a league that has banned the shift. But anyway, <laughs> to, to, to bring it back. Yeah. Um, when our kids, you know, I'm of the mind that I don't ever really want to lie to my kids. Like if my kids ask me straight up, is Santa real? I'm going to have to burst their bubble. Yeah. I don't I don't think my wife likes that, but I'm going to have to be like, nah, Santa ain't real, man. Uh, Christmas is all about Jesus. Let's talk about him yeah. for a second. Um, if they don't straight up ask me, I'm not going to, you know, go in and rain on their parade. Uh, I'm just going to make sure that they understand the real reason that we celebrate Christmas is because God took on human flesh so that he could redeem us from sin and he was born. And that's what we're really celebrating at Christmas time. So, yeah, I think that that principle is a, is a really good one to apply. Well, how are you going to wrap up uh, our Christmas talks next week? I'm going to ask that mine be made a virgin, uh, and that is uh, just sort of a silly, clever, not not super clever, but uh, I'm going to talk about the virgin birth. And this is an element of the Christmas season that I think a lot of people have a difficult time with. Some people even did deny that Jesus was born of a virgin, people who still try to claim the name of Christ. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit, and I'm going to talk about why it matters and why um, we we should uh, feel that it's important. All right. And since you said why it matters, that means our time is coming to a close. So you have any final thoughts about uh, baseball or anything like that? Well, baseball, the winter meetings are going on right now. I, I don't know who's who's going to end up with Bryce Harper. But uh, I'm definitely looking forward to going to the Bulls games with you next year. Yep. Uh, we, lo- we love to go to the Bulls games here in Durham. Um, but right now, uh, we are cu- just a couple weeks away from Christmas. So just want to say enjoy the season. Remember what it's all about. And uh, we'll be here next time. All right. We'll be here. Hashtag Go Bulls. Hashtag Believe. Hashtag Durham Bulls. Best Triple A franchise. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> <laughs>